Um, what I want to speak about today is one very important manifestation of Jewish mysticism uh, of Kabbalah, which took place in the 18th century, and that's the development of Hasidism, of Hasidut. Uh, this was really a, a, a very, very important development in the early modern Jewish experience that transformed the landscape of Judaism as we know it, and still has important impacts uh, on Jewish communities today, and on many Jewish people, both within and outside of Hasidic Jewish communities. What's interesting is that in the early stages of the development of Hasidut, it was actually considered fairly radical, and it was somewhat controversial. And there developed a, something of a rift between the more standard, uh, um, sort of orthodox Jewish world, the world of the yeshiva, uh, and the world of the Hasidic rebbes and the subsequent Hasidic dynasties that developed in Poland and other parts of the Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Um, this was a, a sort of spiritual upheaval of the Jewish community in that part of the world that in some ways was a dispute over rabbinic authority. And the question became, who really was able to bring the masses of Jewish people close to God? And there were different ideas about what rabbis could do and what was the nature of a rabbinic authority and a rabbinic personality that was at stake in this, at first at least, dispute between Hasidut and other sectors of the Jewish world. So Hasidism begins in the mid-1700s, and it's, as the story of Hasidism unfolds, it really crystallizes around the person of Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, also known as the Besht. Um, begins circulating in, in Poland in the mid-1700s, um, and his association with the notion of being a Baal Shem, the master of the divine name, Baalei Shem were a particular kind of Jewish personage outside of the traditional sectors of Jewish authority within the yeshiva world. The Baalei Shem were capable, it was said, of certain types of magical power. They wrote amulets and um, performed other kinds of magical operations, some of them for the sake of restoring health, others for prosperity, and that the, the Baalei Shem were masters of a certain kind of practical Kabbalistic knowledge that had a kind of magical power. But Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, though he's clearly associated in some ways with some of these powers, uh, was also uh, an established rabbi. And in fact, a teacher of mine at, at McGill University, uh, Professor Gershon Hundert, found the contract between the Baal Shem Tov and a community where he was the rabbi um, in, in Poland in, in the mid-1700s. And it's interesting, these, these rabbinic contracts, the kinds of things that rabbis did, a standard rabbi who had a contract to be the rabbi of a community, the terms of their contract were, Rabbi, you may, may enjoy this, they had to just study halakha uh, for 40 hours a week uh, by themselves, unbothered by the community. Uh, they, they, they were, their job was to study. They gave four divrei Torah a year, generally. So there were four. <laughs> I'll take the job. <laughs> and when necessary, they responded to halakhic questions. Um, so this was, a, this was not a job where the rabbi was in constant contact with members of the community. And it doesn't say anything about the rabbi having 
particular responsibilities for addressing the inner spiritual life of the, the members of their community. This just wasn't how these contracts were written, and that wasn't typically understood as the job or the responsibility of a properly yeshiva-trained rabbi. And so these kinds of contracts, we find that the Baal Shem Tov actually did serve early in his career as a rabbi in this kind of capacity. But by the time of the death of the Baal Shem Tov in 1760, we really start to find a movement that develops around the students of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, his, his uh, disciple Rabbi Dov Ber, or the Magid of Mezurish. This becomes the place where we start to find students and students of the students of the Baal Shem Tov, who then establish Hasidic dynasties in various places throughout the world. Some of these dynasties then taking on the names of the places where the rabbi first began to establish that school, sometimes leading to very ironic names like the Satmer Hasidim. Uh, is a very large sect of Hasidim, especially in New York. They are from Satumare in uh, Hungary. Saint Mary uh, is the name of the place. So ironically, the Satmer Hasidim are named after Saint Mary. Um, the, the Hasidic rabbis and their school, their, 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 the, the way that they described the role of the rabbi was very different from the standard uh, yeshiva notion of the rabbi and the kinds of contractual arrangements that we see reflected in Poland and Lithuania and, and uh, Russia at this time. These are different kinds of rabbis with a different kind of power. And one of the things that's really important about the nature of Hasidic rabbinic leadership was the role of charisma, the role of the special nature and character of the Rebbe as being very important to how they were able to garner power and have large followings. The Rebbe's are described as being very special, that they have a certain spiritual elevation to them, and that they are capable of utilizing that spiritual power to reach out to their congregations and elevate them as well. The Rebbe becomes not just a conduit to yeshiva learning and to halachic knowledge. The Rebbe in the Hasidic world becomes a conduit to spiritual power. And the Rebbe is able to help elevate the prayers of the community. The Rebbe becomes, in the world of the Sfirot, the Sfirah of Yesod, the ninth, just above Shekhinah, channels divine energy in the world and is a point of access to divine energy above. And the Rebbe, the Tzaddik, the righteous one, was understood as fulfilling this particular function for their community. The Rebbe's were also referred to as tzaddikim, uh, as the righteous ones for this purpose. They're also sometimes referred to as men of form, as opposed to men of matter. People of matter, this was sort of the, the masses of the congregation who didn't have the particular spiritual talents of the, of the Rebbe or the tzaddik, whereas the tzaddik, the man of form, has a higher level of spiritual elevation, but then they're able to reach out to the congregation and elevate them along with the Rebbe. The Rebbe's were also, however, referred to as men of silk. This was another term. I have a good friend, Glenn Diner, in New York, who wrote a wonderful book on Hasidism called Men of Silk. And they were called that because they wore silk garments, on the one hand, to avoid any potential uh, violation uh, of, of the, the halacha of shotness. Uh, so they would not have any shotness, uh, any mixture of wool and linen in their garments or any other prohibited mixture because they are, they are silk garments. But silk garments were um, a sign of social status, a sign of access 
to people within the broader society. And one of the things that's interesting about the development of the, the Hasidic Rebbe is that they were engaged with the world more broadly. And they were capable of kind of doing two things at once. On the one hand, they were able to appeal to the broader community of Jews who are looking for spiritual elevation, looking for access to the divine in this particular way that it was believed the Rebbe or the Tzaddik could provide. But at the same time, the Rebbe or Tzaddik is also out engaged in the world. They were able to organize communities. They were also able to appeal to important donors who would help support and fund the activities of that particular Rebbe or his rabbinic court and entourage. Some of these grew quite large. And this capacity, both to be populist on the one hand, appealing to broad numbers of people and creating an accessible way of reaching spiritual elevation, and yet at the same time having a good organization and the wherewithal to be able to appeal to wealthy donors and to be able to engage with less observant Jews and engage with the world, this was something that made Hasidism a particularly potent movement in the 18th and 19th centuries. So it was on the one hand popular, on the other hand organizational, and also on the other hand an intellectual movement. This intellectual activity can be seen in the fact that within the first 70 years or 80 years of the Hasidic movement, by some estimates, there were about 4,000 Hasidic books that were written. So there's no question that there were many very important uh, intellectual developments that happened around these charismatic leaders, and that in many cases they were wearing multiple hats as the leader of the people, as the leader of an organization and an important fundraiser, and also as people who could write intellectually, who could write books that ended up having a very important impact on Jewish intellectual history. Now, this capacity to reach large numbers of people and to appeal to their personal inner desire, this is what's really the difference between a charismatic leader and someone who would be totally ignored. They often say that the difference between uh, someone who is merely uh, insane and a charismatic leader is that the charismatic leader is someone who states that they have particular spiritual capacity and they're able to attract a following. And so that capacity to attract a following, uh, this was really, really important. Now, how did they reach people? And it's an interesting question. It wasn't just through books. Books are an important way to gain some insight into the history of Hasidut, but it wasn't just through books that they were able to appeal to people. In fact, I have a, a friend at Northwestern, Yochanan Petrovsky-Stern, who's done really interesting work on Eastern European Jewish history and on Hasidut. And he talked about some of the most important early Hasidic books, um, like the Toldot Yaakov Yosef uh, by Yaakov Yosef of Polonia. So this book, he pointed out, and he was describing the cost of all of these different Hasidic books in their original printings, and he would say how much they cost in kopecks, and then describe how much they cost then in home furnishings, to give us a sense of how much buying power those kopecks have, or he would translate them into goats. So how many goats it would cost? I believe that the, er, the first edition of Toldot Yaakov Yosef uh, cost nine goats. So it was a lot of goats to, to, to buy some of these books. This wasn't something that the average person was necessarily able to get. But there were a lot of other kinds of ephemera that were produced in the early Hasidic world. There were calendars and other sorts of things that were single page broadsides 
uh, that had certain statements from the Rebbe that were accessible in Yiddish. And these things were common. We find them in the archives. There were a lot of different ways in which the Rebbe's were able to reach larger numbers of people, and this message was disseminated in Jewish communities very, very successfully. And it seems that one of the messages that was related was, the Rebbe is able to help you become spiritually elevated, that the tzaddikim are people who will address the inner questions that Jews are grappling with, and in fact, they'll be able to do this in a way that is comprehensible. The joke about the, the standard rabbi with their four sermons a year was that when they would get up on, say, Shabbat HaGadol uh, to give their Sabbath drasha, um, the, the, the joke was that the community didn't think they were getting their money's worth from their rabbi unless they were all completely lost by the second or third sentence. The idea was that the Rebbe was supposed to be able to engage in a level of Jewish discourse that the average person couldn't necessarily access because of the, the structure of yeshiva culture and the, the way that, of course, a person needed money and literacy in order to be able to have access to these ideas. But Hasidut was able to reach people um, in different ways. And, and one of the sort of most famous mechanisms of this is the idea of the Hasidic parable, using parables to teach certain lessons that would address the real lived concerns of Jewish people, men and women. And this seems to have been part of what helped that movement gain such traction. So here's an example of uh, a, a Hasidic parable um, from Yaakov Yosef of Polonia's um, Toldot Yaakov Yosef. Uh, he's commenting on the passage from Genesis 4-7, and unto you, unto you shall be its desire, but you may rule over it, a statement uh, to Cain when he's jealous over his brother and feeling this strong urge to take revenge. And the text says, this reminds me of a parable about a king who ruled several provinces, some near and some far away. The king wanted to find out whether the citizens were truly loyal to him. So he disguised one of his servants as a foreign invader and sent him throughout the kingdom. Some of the people fought against the servant, others offered no resistance. Finally, the servant came to a province where there were great scholars. After considering the matter carefully, the scholars asked, how could the situation really be as it seems? There were too many factors that seemed unlikely or impossible. They concluded, that the supposed invader had been sent by the king to find out whether the people were loyal. When they told this to the servant, he was very pleased by their wisdom and continued on his way. The meaning of this parable is clear. It is the same as what we read the Zohar says about the evil desire that it is like a prostitute sent by the king to seduce his sons. There is also a deeper meaning, which I learned from my teacher, the Baal Shem Tov. It was the king himself who disguised himself and came to seduce the queen. This, the wise one will understand this matter. This is a Kabbalistic illusion, he says. The principle taught me by my teacher is very important. If you observe very carefully, you will discover that God, blessed be he, is present in every sorrow and misfortune, whether physical or spiritual. The sorrow is God's disguise. Once you realize this, the disguise will be removed and all of the sorrows and misfortunes will end. So this parable comes to a point where, by the end, it addresses the concerns of individual people. It and it addresses it in a way that is directly relevant and meaningful to a person's struggle with the events of their lives, 
questions of sorrow, questions of misfortune. And this situates that within this broader history of Jewish learning and renders it accessible even to those who are not expert. Now that drive to address individual questions, the, the, the religious and spiritual struggles of individual people, this is something that's happening simultaneously and in different ways in the world at this time. On the one hand, you have Hasidut, where this question of the inner religious life of Jewish people is being addressed in this particular way. And in the West, you have a very different manifestation, the Enlightenment, where also the use of the individual reason to reach new positions in society, and new levels of enlightenment or understanding. This is leading to serious changes in how Jewish life plays out across Europe. In the West, the enlightenment is taking root. And you're finding Jews moving away from traditional rabbinic authority in this particular fashion of becoming more integrated into their society, and less observant. And in the world of Hasidut, one could say that traditional rabbinic authority is being rethought as well but in a different way that's very rooted within the Jewish tradition, but in a transformed version of it. Um, we'll come back to the question of the Enlightenment in a little bit. Uh, but the focus on inner experience also is often described as this focus on joy and the importance of emotional states for worship. And that this was one of the big differences between Hasidut and other traditional forms of rabbinic authority, this emphasis on joy on ecstatic religious practice, on singing, on dance, on alcohol, on other things of the world, uh, that Hasidut was too ecstatic. Some of the descriptions of Hasidic worship in the very early stages describe people doing somersaults and all kinds of really, really vigorous forms of physical worship. And this was seen as very radical as a departure from the normal way, the customary way of worshiping God. But the story also, of course, is that it was intended to be more accessible. Uh, there's the story of the boy who couldn't pray and played his flute, and the Baal Shem Tov says that this elevates uh, the prayers of the community. The idea that sincerity, the inner emotional state of sincerely worshiping, was more important than the knowledge of all of the many details of worship. This idea, and it's hard to say how much that's really reflective of early Hasidic practice. I think they probably were actually much more traditional than some of the uh, literature depicts them as being. But this sparked a controversy. Um, and it's one where we can imagine this as the differences between the traditions about the Baal Shem Tov and the traditions about the Vilna Gaon. Um, this, these are representative of uh, the Hasidim, the advocates of the men of form, of the men of silk, of the tzaddikim, and the mitnagdim, the ones who opposed the Hasidim. Um, and this was, in fact, one of the kind of brilliant moves of early Hasidut, is that they, they gave the mitnagdim their name. The mitnagdim don't have a positive name about themselves and what they advocated. They end up being named simply as the people who oppose Hasidut. Uh, so, again, Hasidim were not unmindful about how to organize and relate to public opinion. They, they, were, they were clearly very, very capable in this respect. And the stories about the Baal Shem Tov are very populous. The idea is that he was a very humble man, that he came from humble education and originally a more limited formal education. The stories were that when he was a kid in yeshiva, he would wander off and, and he would wander in the forest and, and that he was having these, these, these uh, very personal spiritual experiences outside of the confines of the yeshiva. 
they say that he has a low social status and worked as a laborer in the mountains with his wife and was more focused on piety. Interestingly, of course, we do know that the, the Baal Shem Tov did get rabbinic ordination, did work as a rabbi, but the stories that are told about him is that he was from outside of the normal confines of rabbinic authority. The Vilna Gaon was a towering rabbinic authority. Um, the, the stories about him was that he gave his first Talmudic address at a very, very young age, that he studied halakha and Talmud 18 hours a day, and that he slept very, very little. And he saw little ex value in ecstatic religious practice, but he functioned within the confines of the world of the yeshiva. And so the way the Hasidim understands this is that this is like the difference between uh, a, a cedar tree and a, a, a date palm. They say that. They're both big, strong trees, but uh, uh, the cedar doesn't give fruit, whereas the date palm does. And so their argument was that the tzaddikim who function outside of the world of the yeshiva, they're like the date palm, and that they give back, they nourish their communities in a way that other strong trees that don't bear fruit are not able to do. Um, so the, the arguments against uh, Hasidim were that they were lax concerning halakha. Uh, one of the things that was considered very controversial is that they would recite certain prayers outside of their customary appointed time. So mincha, if they were singing and dancing and having a spiritual elevation together uh, and this pushed the time of mincha too late, they would still recite mincha even if the stars were out. So that they were having prayer and the halachic obligations about when it should happen fall outside of its customary appointed times because they wanted to accommodate certain types of spirituality, certain types of ecstatic practices that came first, and these other halachic obligations were seen as coming second. Um, as was mentioned, it was seen that they were giving too much meaning to song and dance and drink as modes of worship. They were not focused enough on Talmud study, but instead focused on their experiences with the Rebbe, listening to his stories, listening to his interpretations of Torah, but not really focused on Talmudism enough. And there was certain divisive practices that they developed that were considered controversial. One really prominent example of this was in the, the second and third generations of, of uh, Hasidic dynasties, we see them having a different halachic idea about the, the knife that's used for slaughter. So they kind of had their own form of shechita. This, this, this is something that potentially could really divide a community where they can't eat together or regard each other's uh, kosher slaughtering as legitimate. So this was considered nearly a schismatic practice. This was considered problematic. And really it was a question of giving meaning to the tzaddik, giving how much meaning should be uh, attributed to the righteous man. Um, this was considered in many ways um, a rejection of more established forms of rabbinic authority, and it was seen as a, a replacement of it with this other form of rabbinic authority that was less focused on the terms of what had typically been the yeshiva world. But if we look at the historical record a little more carefully, it seems that not only was the Baal Shem Tov an established rabbi, but many of his students were, and many of his supporters, and the supporters of his students and their subsequent dynasties, came from within the traditional Jewish yeshiva world. And it leads one to wonder, why are they rejecting the form of authority in which they have been functioning? And here we can see that the, the 
movement al Khasidu wasn't simply against rabbinic, the rabbinic world. It happened within the rabbinic world. And there are some good, good reasons for this. One is that after the fall of the Council of the Four Lands, which was a more sort of aggregate rabbinic authority, um, when that falls right before and during the period of Hasidut, we start to find that rabbinic posts, especially in certain cities and towns throughout Poland, had a lot of political interference from the local government. And the rabbis who were selected to be the authorities in particular places, um, they weren't necessarily just selected by their community without interference by the mayor or other non-Jewish members of uh, that community. Rabbis had power. Rabbis had the capacity to do a number of things that the local political, say Polish uh, or Russian authorities were invested in. And so some of the people who ended up as rabbis weren't really selected by the Jewish community. They were selected by the political authority in which that Jewish community lived. So the way of optioning around this, the way of getting around this, was in some ways Hasidu. The rabbis who are selected by Hasidic communities aren't given formal contracts. They don't have formal relationships to the government. Instead, they were the spontaneous emergence of authority from a Hasidic community. And that was in some ways a more democratic way of selecting rabbinic authority during this period. And these rabbis then became very, very powerful, not because they had a state mandate, but because they were able to attract followers and they were able through their charisma to attract supporters, which then helped them to further develop uh, as leaders and to further develop their own court and movement. Um, one example of this, the notion of how the tzaddik functions on multiple levels in society, we can find an example of this in Rabbi Nachman's of Braslav's Likute Morharan, um, in his collection of, of, of sayings and parables. Um, and he describes the value of the tzaddik and the, really the mystical and Kabbalistic meaning of all of the actions of the tzaddik in many sectors of society. He says, this is the great value in having a close relationship to the true tzaddikim. Through such a relationship, you can achieve complete repentance and forgiveness for your sins. For the dinim, the divine judgments, are sweetened and completely abolished. But this means a union is established between God and his Shekhinah, the divine presence. The true tzaddikim unite the lower wisdom with the upper wisdom. And the conversations of the true tzaddikim, even when they are talking about everyday things, is very precious. As our sages of blessed memory indicate, when they said the conversations of the learned man is something that should be studied. This is Avodah Zarah and um, Tractate Sukkah. Through his conversations and study, stories and what he says to the common people, the true tzaddik builds and destroys worlds, lifting the lower wisdom and uniting it with the upper wisdom. When the tzaddik talks to wicked people, he lifts up his own mind and unites it to God. And he also uplifts their minds from wherever they are and connects them to God. The true tzaddik brings sinners to repentance by lowering his mind and speaking to them with wonderful wisdom and great artistry, connecting all of these conversations to God. The true tzaddikim sometimes discuss wars and other worldly matters with wicked people. But the tzaddik transforms these conversations, making them into a garment within which the great light of Torah is found. This idea of elevating the sparks that are trapped within other places in the world, it's a, 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 a 
sort of a transformation of a Kabbalistic idea from the Middle Ages that became then popular uh, according to the students of Isaac Luria in the 16th century, the notion that um, the creative process underwent a moment of catastrophe, of a, a shattering of the vessels, that the world now contains sparks of light that's diffused in many different places, and it's the job of the righteous to find those sparks and elevate them back up to the divine. And the tzaddik here is depicted as someone who can do this even by speaking to sinners about non-pious, non-Torah-related topics that the tzaddik is able to elevate sparks through this means. This is one of the things that we find coming up in stories about the tzaddikim uh, that are told in Hasidic circles quite a bit, that they functioned outside of the world of the yeshiva, that they would hold conversations with people who were not pious people about subjects that were not pious subjects, but that they were able to appeal to them to elevate them, to bring them into their circle, and also to acquire their support. And through that mechanism, they were able to bring both the financial capital and the organizational know-how that was necessary to then pair that with their own personal charisma and the way in which their charisma was able to reach out to people and provide accessible practices and accessible stories that would bring people in connection with Judaism. In this respect, it was actually very successful. They often talk about avodah begashmiut, worship through corporeality, through the physical. And there are many stories that are told about the importance of the stories, uh, the importance of the, the physical practices um, that Hasidim uh, would engage in, not only song and dance, they were also often um, criticized for their, their, their love of tobacco, uh, the smoking of pipes. There's a story told about the Baal Shem Tov that smoking a pipe is actually a way to liberate the sparks of the divine uh, that, are, that are in tobacco and to elevate them, and to elevate them through the pleasure of smoking tobacco. They also talk about uh, the Sabbath and the meals of the Sabbath as a kind of pleasure that actually satisfies the body so that the soul can be free in order to worship God and be connected to God. And that the Sabbath in particular would be a moment where the tzaddik would interact with his, his chassidim, with his followers, and they would thereby be elevated. Uh, often, in particular, the Saturday nights, the tish sitting around the Rebbe's table, his tish, and uh, staring at the Rebbe's face, sharing the Rebbe's food. This was a form of communion where the community could then rely upon the authority of the charismatic leader in order to elevate them. These communal forms of Hasidism that developed are actually a very accessible mechanism for addressing the needs of individuals because individuals need not be as expert as the tzaddik in order to achieve spiritual elevation. To draw close to God, they need merely be part of a community, a community that supports them and helps them, and therefore makes this kind of spirituality accessible to them. In this way, uh, Hasidism was feared because it was a kind of rebellion against rabbinic authority that emerged spontaneously from within the community. It wasn't controllable. It would happen where it would happen, and Hasidic rabbinic authority was therefore deriving directly from communities that would select those rabbis, follow them, support them, and create a movement around them. But some of that suspicion between Hasidim and Mitnagdim ultimately dissipated when it became clear that the Enlightenment had become a serious challenge as well, not only to traditional rabbinic authority, but to standard or more traditional forms of Judaism. 
And so Hasidim and Mitnagdim had somewhat of a repairing of that relationship. And even though there's still a, a difference between Orthodox, uh, Orthodoxy uh, and other forms of Judaism and Hasidism, they had a similar sense about what should be the role of traditional Jewish practice. They were both very traditional, as opposed to the Enlightenment in which people were abandoning traditional Jewish practice for these different formations of Jewish identity that both the Mitnagdim and the Hasidim were uncomfortable with. As we move into the modern period and into, well, into the contemporary moment, it's interesting that Hasidut has had elements of uh, itself become manifest in all forms of Judaism. We find rabbis in all different kinds of synagogues who will cite Hasidic texts and Hasidic authorities alongside all kinds of other authorities. We find Orthodox rabbis who do this. We find renewal rabbis who do this. We find forms of neo-Hasidism today, which combine traditional Hasidut with much more contemporary religious forms and sensibilities. And Hasidism has continued to develop in all kinds of ways, both traditional and non-traditional. And this history of Hasidut, I think, is ongoing. It continues to be a potent force within Jewish society, and it continues to be a form of cultural resistance against some of the aspects of postmodernity that would parcel people off into individuals and away from forms of traditional religion. I think, as a result, Hasidism is still in some ways feared as a spontaneous formation of Judaism that can be uncontrolled and can do things outside of any kind of rabbinic interference. And yet, it's also admired, admired for a form of adamant Jewish authenticity that continues to find new ways to express itself even in our own contemporary moment. Thank you very much, and good Shabbos. So we, we, thank you. We have a few moments for questions. I'm happy to go on both sides of the... Yes? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, the Chabad Lubavitch um, from the, the Shneer Zalman of Liadi, yes, this is a, um, a school of Hasidut. It's one that's taken somewhat of an unusual turn in modernity by being very, very involved in outreach and um, enabling Jews to become more observant is a, is a big, a very important part um, of what they conceive of as their, their mission, their task from their Rebbe. Uh, but this is a... Um, a, a, a facet of Hasidut that's still alive today, very much so. That's definitely true. Um, the idea of raising the divine sparks, the idea of uniting lower and upper wisdom that was mentioned in some of these stories, we didn't have time to get into it, but they definitely describe Kabbalistic ideas much more freely and much more openly than we find in other forms of Judaism. The Vilna Gon and others, they embrace Kabbalah as legitimate, but they don't utilize it in the way that Kabbalists do, I mean, the way that, that Hasidim do, and that does become a big part of their own public teaching in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. So yes, they are, they are more connected to, to Kabbalah, for sure. Oh, sorry, yeah, the question was whether Kabbalah um, is a, a, an important facet of, of, of Hasidic teaching, uh, more so than in other forms of Judaism at the time. And I essentially said, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yes? How did the Hasidic 
Hasidism find its way into the Sephardic community? Ah, so the question is, how did uh, Hasidism find its way into Sephardic communities? And that's actually interesting, because there's no question that this is a very Ashkenazi formation um, in its early stages. But Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews were um, in considerable contact at the time, and we're moving around in some of the same circles. And I think it's testimony to the appeal of Hasidut that it was able to have the kind of crossover appeal that it had, um, that Sephardic communities also became drawn to it, um, Yemenite communities became drawn to a version of it. Um, also, it, it was a very Kabbalistic form of Judaism, and as opposed to the de-Kabbalized Enlightenment Judaism in the West, Hasidut, I think, presented a more familiar face that um, some Sephardic communities were, were drawn to. So it wasn't a universal Sephardic phenomenon, but the fact that it was able to appeal to Sephardim at all, I think says a lot about the degree to which it spoke to the hopes and aspirations of Jews in a particular time. But ge geographically, the, the books from Eastern Europe made it into the you know, Middle East and... At books never sit still. It's amazing, even in the Middle Ages, when people are writing books by hand, uh, books are able to travel around very quickly. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. So yes, the, the books move fast. Question. When we um, look at Chabad today and their period of their outreach effort, it seems to be, following up on the question earlier, it seems to be parallel to what you described in terms of the uh, contrast between the Hasidim and the Midnagdim of the time, and that the Hasidim uh, had a popularity and that they, they reached out and that they, they had this sort of political sort of approach of, of being populous. And the Chabad tend to be more populous too. Would you say that, so my question is, would you say that, that if you look at Chabad today and, and what it's doing, is that kind of a picture of, of what you described earlier? Is that give us an idea of what we would have seen if we were back there, or is it different? So the question is, is Chabad today uh, sort of a snapshot of this combination of populism, and also sophisticated organization. And I would say yes, um, especially under Menachem Mendel Schneerson, there's no question that people found him to be a very compelling, charismatic personality. And there are many, many Jews today who have stories of their experience with Schneerson and that he was, he, was, he was charismatic in this really, really unique way. And he set up an organization that functions well, that was extremely successful in terms of fundraising, and was extremely successful in creating a global network of outreach that is unparalleled anywhere else in the Jewish community. That's, that doesn't happen by accident. We find that other Hasidic communities in earlier periods as well were capable at putting together an organization and appealing to finance uh, the movement through donors in ways that were very, very well thought out. And at the same time, that same person was also a charismatic individual whom people regarded as a true tzaddik and as a spiritual authority. And they regarded it as very, very spiritually meaningful just to be near them and to look at them, much less to hear them speak and to hear them teach. That, that's a potent combination, and it's one that definitely enables Hasidut to become the kind of movement that it was, in some ways an alternative to other traditional forms of rabbinic authority that didn't utilize the combination of organization and charisma. Thank you. Yes. Sir. Yes, the, uh, my background is Nagdim, and the uh, Roman Gaon excommunicated the Hasidim 
decree today? When, when, did it, when was it not louder? Um, it became within 100 years pretty clear that these groups were working together in ways that they really hadn't been. Um, the disputes between them were, I think, they were bitter, but they weren't a true divide in the sense that there was not a lot of harm that Midnagdim could do to Hasidic communities because Hasidic communities had their own sort of source of authority and their own source of money and organization. So as Mitnagdim would try to stop Hasidic development, it doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because it's clear this was a much more spontaneous and grassroots phenomenon that was able to develop despite opposition from what was at the time very, very important sources of authority. It reveals to us that the Jewish community had multiple centers of authority and that the Hasidic one was able to develop spontaneously in its own way outside of those mechanisms of authority that already existed. I, I think because it was ignored. I mean, at some level, I, the, 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 you know, the Hasidic development was able to continue apace because the, the, the prohibition um, was not compelling to enough people. Yes, sir? Can you have some examples of the, those kind of groups in Israel? You didn't mention Israel at all. I'm sure there must be some there because in, in Europe, most of them died out. The, the largest, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Hasidim today, and the largest concentrations are in the United States. Uh, Hasidut is a, a living phenomenon today. You only need to walk down 15th Avenue in Borough Park. If you've ever been to Borough Park, uh, it's amazing. And there you have, you have tremendously vibrant communities, and in Israel as well. But you'll have communities who are living in places where Yiddish is not the vernacular language, right, in New York. Uh, uh, English-speaking America, you have people who are second, third, fourth generation in the United States, but they speak English with a heavy accent because Yiddish is their, their, their native language. Um, they, they have a Yiddish press. They don't watch TV. They, they're largely insulated from the broader American community. Um, they have their own forms of music. They have their own neighborhoods. And a person can live in a Hasidic neighborhood in New York or in Israel and not be very connected to or aware of what's going on in the broader society. These are very powerful communities, um, and they're, they're very much a part of the Jewish landscape today. But you have then other communities, like the Breslov Hasidim, um, or if you've seen like the you know the, the little furry caps that people wear with the stuff about Nachman around it, if you've seen that when you go to Israel, this is part of a broader outreach of a more neo-Hasidic, a more original form, of uh, Hasidic outreach that appeals to a large number of people um, outside of the more traditional forms that we might find, for instance, with Satmer Hasidim. So this, this living version of Hasidut is still alive in various forms today. Do we have time for one more question? Uh, yes. Yes.
that because it seems like it's somewhat overwhelming that it's creeping into the books, the literature, the, the all sorts of things. There are kids going off the Dara, that kind of thing. It, it is creeping in, and how are they handling it? Or will it change So the question is, does the sort of the pervasive presence of a postmodern world with the internet pose a substantial threat to the continued insularity of Hasidic communities. Is that a fair version of your question? Okay, and I think that, that I, I think, I, you know, I hate to predict the future, but I think that Hasidut will continue to exist as um, a small but very intense rejection of the, the terms of modernity and postmodernity. Um, they won't function as free-floating individuals like postmodernity. They will function within their community. They will keep their own traditions, their own language, not because they're ignorant of the outside world, but because they are deliberately selecting an option that is not like the outside world. And even people who are part of the broader culture of, of modernity and postmodernity, um, Jews who live outside of the Hasidic world are a little bit drawn to some aspects of Hasidut. Hasidut does have this more broad popular appeal. Certain Hasidic narratives, certain Hasidic stories, even certain Hasidic practices have become appealing in the broader Jewish world as part of a more moderate resistance to the terms of postmodernity, to the terms of kind of complete individualism outside of the confines of a religious community. So Jews who do select to be part of a religious community, though not an insular Hasidic one, are drawn a little bit to some of the stories and techniques adopted by Hasidic communities because it feels in some ways authentic. And the, the strategies of Hasidic storytelling continue to appeal to people, to Jews, who are thinking through their own spiritual questions in a world filled with options. And Hasidu, interestingly, is very effective as presenting itself as one of those options for people to select. Because you, you did say that the original rabbis were very open to people of other thought processes. That they were out and engaged in the yes, world, the um, uh, right, especially for the purposes of, uh, of, of fundraising and of organization. But many Hasidic rabbis who are um, leaders of Hasidic communities, they're also engaged with the world in a way that their Hasidim are not. So they're, they're engaged with politicians, um, they're, they're, they're engaged with fundraisers. When the Rebbe of Babov had his funeral, there were like 3,000 people there, Jews from all sectors uh, of the Jewish world. Um, he was also, he, he was very important for um, Holocaust survivors and many people went to him and sought counsel. But the police chief was there, I mean all these people were there, it turns out he was, he was in touch with um, and that he was able to reach many, many people. His charisma extended well beyond his community. But the organization of that community, which is also a very uh, well-organized, though somewhat insular community, is, it relies upon a leader who's capable of being able to reach beyond it in order to nurture it and protect it. And this is something that the Hasidic Rebbe's, it was an important and continues to be an important facet of their leadership. Thank you very much.